You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Hey, good morning. Welcome again to Whitefields Community Church. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Epistle of James? In the back of your Bibles, right after the book of Hebrews, so if you can find Hebrews, a big one, uh, there in your New Testament. And then uh, just to the right of Hebrews, you'll find the Epistle of James. We've been studying through James in our series that we're going through right now called uh, Faith in Motion. Faith in Motion, which is also our theme for the year. So please open with me in your Bibles to James chapter four, and that's where we'll begin this morning. We'll begin by reading our text, which is uh, James four, and we'll read the first couple of verses. We're gonna study through verse 12, but we'll read through verse six. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, no, it is for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And truly, Lord, we desire to understand and grasp everything that this text has to say to us, everything that you have to speak to us through this text. So Lord, may you give us ears to hear. May we be attentive. And Lord, truly, may we get the full message of what you desire for us to uh, know and for us to put into practice in our lives as we study your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, currently we're in a series called Faith in Motion, which we're studying through the epistle of James, and really the theme of James's epistle, and, and it's a really important one for us to study, is this. It's that real faith manifests itself in actions. And in a way, James functions as kind of a, a good counterbalance to a lot of the other things that we read in the New Testament. And, uh, and James really emphasizes this. Real faith manifests itself in actions and encourages us to examine ourselves to make sure that we are indeed in the faith by looking at the fruit of our lives and the actions that we live out. And it's, this book is all about this. And our theme throughout this, this series is this. If the gospel is true, and by the way, it is, but if the gospel is true and we really believe it, how does that affect our lives practically? So if the gospel is true and we really believe it, how does that affect our lives practically? That's what we're studying about here in the epistle of James. The title of today's message is The Way of Sorrows and the Way of Joy. The Way of Sorrows and the Way of Joy. How many of you, when you were a kid, you dreamed that one day you would grow up and you would be absolutely miserable, right? That was your goal, right? Like one day I'm gonna grow up I'm gonna finish school, I'm gonna go out in the world, and my life is just gonna be characterized by conflict and frustration and unfulfilled desires. That's what I want. I just wanna grow up and be absolutely miserable. And isn't that the definition of misery, right? To have a life characterized by conflict, unfulfilled desires, frustration. Well, that's the situation that James describes here in chapter four as being characteristic of so many of our lives. 
you're constantly facing conflict, right? You're facing conflict at home, at work, with other people, you're butting heads with people, and you're frustrated, and you're frustrated because you have unfulfilled desires. There are things that you want in life and they seem to elude you, the things that you want the most. You're chasing after things, you're thinking, if I only had that, then I would be happy, then I would be satisfied and content, then I would be okay. But it's like chasing after bubbles. You ever chased after bubbles? You run after them and you wanna grab one of those bubbles, they look so good, and what happens when you grab it? It's gone, it disappears. It, it just ceases to exist in your hands, it pops. It doesn't fulfill you, it doesn't have the substance that you thought it would. And then what do you do next? Well, you're on to chasing something else. That's how so many of us live our lives, like chasing after bubbles. Taking hold of it and then realizing it wasn't as substantial as we thought. See, James wrote this section to people who were struggling with this very thing. And as a result, their lives were characterized by conflict, frustration, and unfulfilled desires. And they were miserable as anyone in that situation would be. And the question is this, how do you end up in that place? How do you end up in that place where you're miserable and this is your life? How do you get to that place in life? Because none of us intends to, we don't start out trying to get miserable. And, and maybe more importantly, James is then gonna tell us, how do you get out of that place? How do you get to a better place? So how do you get out of that? James is gonna show us that there are two paths there are two paths that we can take in life. One leads to misery, the other one leads to joy. One leads to misery and the other leads to joy. Here's what we're gonna see in this section. First of all, we're gonna spend some time talking about how to be miserable. Just in case you are looking for some steps, I've got some steps for you. Verses one through four, we're gonna talk about how to be miserable. Then we're gonna talk about the way out of misery and into joy. And finally, we're gonna talk about the judge who saves the judge who saves. So let's talk about the first four verses, how to be miserable. James starts out in verse one and he says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's this age old question, isn't it? Why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just get along? We all want world peace. We sing songs about it. We talk about it. We, we form committees to make world peace, and yet we can't even get along in our own families. We can't even get along with people at work. We fight and quarrel with the people we love the most. How do we expect for the world to get along? And the question is this, what is, why is that? What is at the root of all this strife and conflict that we experience all the time? James tells us there at the end of verse one, he says this, is it not this? Is not this the root of all this conflict and strife, that your passions are at war within you. What James is saying is that what makes us miserable is not our circumstances. What makes us miserable is that we chase after the wrong things and for the wrong reasons. I'm gonna say that again. James is telling us what makes us miserable is not our circumstances. It's that we're chasing after the wrong things for the wrong reasons. See, we tend to think the other way around, right? We tend to think in our society, we tend to think that happiness depends on our outward circumstances. But James is telling us, no, that's simply not the case. If you look around, you'll notice that there are plenty of people in this world who have everything, so to say, that this world has to offer. And yet they're absolutely miserable. Their lives are characterized by what? By conflict, frustration, unfulfilled desires. 
You know, it's, it's interesting if you've ever talked to somebody or maybe you've been that person yourself who's visited a poor country, like a developing country, right? And you go there and sometimes I hear people say this, they come back and they're, they're like shocked. They, they go to these places and they find that these people who have nothing materially are oftentimes more joyful, more content than we who live here in the US and have a lot of stuff. And they're like, how can that be? Those people are so poor. Why is it that they're happy? Because, right, we assume that happiness and misery both depend on outward circumstances. If you have certain things, then you will be happy. If you don't have certain things, then you'll be miserable. But the fact is, as James is telling us, that's not how it works. What makes us miserable, James says, is not our circumstances. It's the fact that we're pursuing the wrong things and we're doing it for the wrong reasons. He says this, your passions are at war within you. In other words, there's a conflict going on inside of you. That's the issue. There's an inner battle going on. You know, St. Augustine, he wrote this. He said, the root of sin and the root of all disorder in our lives is what he called disordered loves. Disordered loves. In other words, you're loving the wrong things or you've got your life out of order. You're loving the wrong things in the wrong order. Maybe you're loving the right things, but you are all mixed up in your priorities. Think about it like this. The two greatest commandments Jesus gave. Do you remember what they were? Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, everything you are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. But what we tend to do is we get our loves out of order. Those are the two things Jesus told us to love the most, God and your neighbor, but we get out of order, right? We place love for ourselves and love for our agendas over loving God and loving other people. And so rather than loving God and loving people, we try to use God and use people to get what we want, right? To fulfill our agendas and and to do what we wanna do. And I always challenge you guys to ask this question. I challenge you all the time, and I'm gonna ask you again today. Ask yourself this question. Do you primarily view God as useful to you, or do you see him as beautiful to you? Do you primarily approach God as useful to you, or do you see him as beautiful to you? How you answer that question will have very big implications for how you relate to God and how you live your life. It's a hugely important question. What James is telling us here is this. The way to be miserable is to focus on yourself, to live for yourself. If you want to be miserable, then do that. Always be focused on yourself. And and when you think about other people, be focused on what can that person do for me to further my agenda or to serve me or to make me happy. And when it comes to God, think about him like this. What can God do for me? What do I expect God? What do I need God to do for me? See, if you do that, it will lead to, guess what? Conflict with people. It will also lead to conflict with God. Verse six tells us this, that God actually opposes the person who has that attitude. In other words, you're setting yourself at enmity with God, he says in verse seven. James says this in verse two, you desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. And then he says, verse three, even when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask in order to spend it on your own passions. See, the issue James is bringing up here is one of motivation. It's one of motivation. You're going after the things that you want 
with no concern for what God wants or, or, or for serving other people. You're praying about things. When you pray, even when you do pray, it's, it's only about getting what you want, right? You're presenting your shopping list to God. It's about fulfilling your pleasures. Your prayers aren't, God, what would you have me do? God, what is your mission? What, what should I do with what you've given me? No, it's just a shopping list of, God, here's all the stuff I need you to do for me. He says in verse two, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, is he talking about literally murdering? Probably not, and I'm gonna show you why. A couple reasons why he's probably not talking about literal murder. The first of them is this. One of the key features here in the book of James, or in the epistle of James, is that he makes a lot of references to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And now Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was recorded. It was, it was kept. It was something that the early Christians would have studied a lot. And so James knows that his hearers are familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so he makes kind of constant allusions to the Sermon on the Mount. And so I would encourage you, if you want to go a little deeper, read the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And you're going to notice as you read through James and the Sermon on the Mount, there's constant parallels between the two. James is making reference to the Sermon on the Mount. So in the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus said. He said this, You have heard it said in the law, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is speaking to people like us, people who would say, hey, look, I'm not that bad of a person. After all, I've never murdered anybody, right? How many times have you heard somebody say that? Maybe you've said that, right? Like, hey, I'm not that bad. I've never murdered anybody. And Jesus is saying, well, hold on a second. Maybe you've never literally murdered somebody, but have you ever despised somebody in your heart? Have you ever felt contempt for somebody? Have you ever given somebody the silent treatment or treated them as if they're dead to you? Have you ever in your anger used mean, cutting, hurtful words? Have you ever assassinated somebody's character behind their back or even to their face uh, in the way that you've talked to them or talked about them? Jesus is saying this, if you have ever held on to anger and bitterness in your heart towards somebody, that's also a sin, right? It's as if you've committed murder in your heart towards that person. The point of what Jesus is saying is that sin isn't just what you do outwardly, right? Sin isn't just what you do outwardly. Sin begins in the heart. It begins in the mind. What we do outwardly is just the manifestation of what's already going on. John the Apostle, probably also drawing, by the way, on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says this in 1 John. He says this, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So he says, anybody who hates is a murderer. What that means is that it's completely incompatible with, with Christianity, right? To be a Christian and to hate other people, or even just, let's put it this way, to hold on to bitterness or to refuse to forgive other people, it's totally incompatible with being a Christian, right? We who have been forgiven we have an obligation. Jesus even told us that. We have an obligation to forgive those who have sinned against us. And when we refuse to do that, when we hold on to grudges, when we choose to stay angry, it's like in God's eyes as if we've committed murder in our hearts. And what James is showing here is the futility of a self-centered life. The futility of a self-centered life. Here's the irony of the whole thing. The more you focus on yourself, the more you focus on your own happiness, the more miserable you will be. 
Let me say that again, because it's super important. It's so different than what our culture today says. Here's the deal. The more you focus on yourself, the more miserable you will be. The more you are focused on your happiness, the less happy you will be. You know why? Because your life has no greater purpose than yourself. Right, so, so much of the advice that goes around today is, you know, focus on yourself, do what makes you happy. You know, don't worry about other people, focus on you. But here's the irony, the more you focus on yourself, the more miserable you are, right? The more introspective you are, the less happy you will be. Because like James is describing here, the kind of attitude that's focused on yourself, what does it lead to? Well, he lists a few things. One of the things he lists is covetousness. Covetousness is when you look at what somebody, said, what somebody else has and you say, why do they have that? Why don't I have that? I'm more deserving of that than they are. Why, why did God let them do that? And why not me? I, I work harder, I try harder, I'm better. Why them and not me? I deserve it more than they do. That's covetousness. And covetousness leads to what? It leads to frustration. It leads to conflict. He says in verse two, you do not have because you do not ask. He's speaking about prayer, obviously. He's speaking about prayer. See, we can get so focused on ourselves and pursuing what we want that we don't even bring it to God in prayer. I wonder how many times that has been true of me in my life. It, it kind of almost like grieves me in a way to read that verse and say, man, there are probably times in my life where I have failed to receive something that God would have given me because I, I failed to pray. And I wonder if that's true in your life. And I wonder, you know, the idea here is that God is waiting. He's, he's waiting for us to ask. He's waiting for us to come to him and seek and just ask for what we need. See, we have a big God and we shouldn't be afraid to ask for big things. Um, this doesn't usually happen to me, but like two weeks ago, or actually it was a week ago, I got to go to this restaurant in San Diego. And it was, uh, you know, in, in Little Italy, which is like a fancy neighborhood. And our whole meal was comped and they told us, hey, we want you to order the best things on the menu because we wanna show you how good our restaurant is. I was with the owner of the restaurant, right? And so uh, I've never really had that experience before, but here's what I learned is that, you know, I thought, okay, well, if the meal's free, they probably want me to not ask for a lot. But quite the opposite was true. They actually wanted me to order the nicest things on the menu so they could show off how great their restaurant was. And I think in a way, it's, it's like that with God. I believe that it honors God when we ask for great things, when we don't ask for little things. Because why? Because it shows how much we believe that he is not only capable, but willing Right, And so when we ask God for big things, not little things, I actually believe that it honors God. It, 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 I believe it brings a smile to his face that he's like, man, look, he believes great things about me. He believes that I'm a great God. Uh, you know, let me just say, may it not be true of us that we ever fail to receive something that God would give us uh, because we failed to ask. May we be those who come to God with our needs and even with our desires and we ask in prayer. James goes on in verse four, he says this, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now again, like with murder, when he talks about adultery here, I don't believe he's speaking about literal adultery. I believe what he's speaking about is spiritual adultery. And the reason we know that is because immediately after, he talks about friendship with the world. And I'm gonna explain kind of at the end why he would use these phrases, murder, adultery, and I'll show you why that is. 
But if you remember back to our Remember the Prophets series, the series we did right before this one at the beginning of this year, one of the things we saw is that the prophets would use this language. They would call idolatry, they would refer to it as adultery, spiritual adultery. The idea is this, that God has a relationship with his people, which is a marriage. It's compared to, it's akin to a marriage. It's a covenant relationship. In fact, God calls himself the husband of his people. And he calls his people in the Old Testament, the bride of Yahweh, right? And in the New Testament, he calls us the bride of Christ. And so the idea here is this, that God has wed himself to his people. Our relationship with him is like a marriage. And so when we go off chasing after other things, pursuing other things, worshiping other things, God takes it personally. He takes it personally. He says, it's as if you're cheating on me or having an affair. You're breaking your covenant vows. You're committing spiritual adultery. And James is saying this, when we live for ourselves, when we pursue selfish desires, when we live for anything other than God and his glory, we're committing spiritual adultery. We're chasing after things. We're living for things. We're looking to other things to give us what only God can give us, and we're worshiping other things. And James says this, to be a friend of the world is to make yourself an enemy of God. What what does that mean? What does it mean to be a friend of the world? Well, you see, you have to see this, that the New Testament uses these terms a lot. It talks about the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven, right? Two kingdoms that are set in opposition to each other, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is eternal. This world is passing away. The king, in the kingdom of God, God is honored as king, as Lord, as sovereign, but in the kingdoms of this world, they're characterized by rebellion against God. And so if Jesus came to save us from this world and bring us into his kingdom, then to love this world and to befriend this world means to essentially reject what Jesus came to do and to embrace the principles of this world, rebellion against God, autonomy from God. In other words, to go in the opposite direction of where Jesus wants to take us. That's what it means to be friends with the world. And so here in this section, let me just sum it up for you. James is showing us that there are two paths. There are two paths that we can choose. One path which leads to misery and another one which leads to joy. If you wanna be miserable, let me just give you a few steps. Number one, focus on yourself. Focus on yourself. Number two, pursue selfish desires. And number three, embrace the principles of this world rather than the principles of God's kingdom. If you do that, surefire recipe for misery. You will end up with conflict and frustration and unfulfilled desires. If that's what you want, then that's the way to get it. But what's the other path? What is the path that leads out of this vicious cycle of misery and leads us into joy? Well, let's see. That starts in verse five and goes to verse 10. The way out of misery and into joy. In verse five, James says something really interesting. He says this, or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Some people balk at that word, jealous. I remember a friend of mine, he's, he's not a Christian. We grew up together. I was talking to him about the Bible at one point and he said, you know what trips me up? is that the Bible says that God is jealous. He's like, I just don't, I don't think I could ever worship a God who's jealous because to him, jealousy means pettiness. It means that God wants something he can't have. It means that God is insecure, basically. 
But that's not the idea here, is it? No, jealousness is this. He's saying that God doesn't sit by passively and let you just do your own thing, right? When you wander off, like James is talking about this, you set yourself at enmity with God. What does God say? Does he say, all right, fine. If that's how you want it, then so be it. No, he jealously pursues you. In other words, he wants you. God loves you and God wants you. That's what that means, that he jealously yearns over the spirit he has placed in you. It means that God loves you and God wants you. Even if you've sinned, even if you've gone astray and turned away from him and made yourself, even, even if you treated him as your enemy, he still loves you and he wants you. That's so important. Even if you're living as if God's your enemy, he loves you and wants you. He doesn't just give up on you. He pursues you. That's how much he loves you. In verse six, it says this, but he gives more grace. Guys, I gotta tell you, the word but in the Bible is one of the best words. Anytime you see that word but, you gotta underline it, circle it, highlight it, never forget it because it's so important. It's showing a contrast, it's showing this. You've made yourself an enemy of God. You've set your life on this track that's leading you to misery, but God gives more grace. You understand what it's saying? It's saying you were off doing this, but God intervened. It's such a wonderful, hopeful phrase. James is telling us you messed up, you pursued the wrong things, but God his grace is bigger than any of your sins. The word grace, you know what it means? It means undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. Think about it like this. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't get the punishment that you did deserve, right? So justice is when you give someone what they deserve. Mercy is when you don't give someone the punishment that they do deserve. But grace is something different. Grace is when you give somebody something that they don't deserve, that they've never deserved. See, grace is a gift. You don't earn a gift. You earn wages, but you don't earn a gift. A gift is something that someone gives you, not because they have to, but because they want to. See, that's the idea here with God's grace. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, God's grace is bigger. In fact, it says here, he still gives more grace. And the question is this, how do I receive that grace? He tells us in verse six, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, James is laying out two paths for us here. The first is characterized by prideful self-seeking and self-reliance. Prideful self-seeking and self-reliance. That's the first path that leads to misery. The second path is the path characterized by humility. Humility means this. Humility doesn't mean thinking down on yourself. Humility means understanding who you are in relation to God. It means having a correct view of yourself. We put it this way. It means this, understanding that God is the Lord and you are his servant, as opposed to thinking that you are the Lord and God is your servant, right? I'll say that again. Humility means understanding that God is the Lord and you are his servant, as opposed to thinking that you are the Lord and God is your servant. James says this in verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So a few weeks ago, some of us from Whitefields had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem. And one of the places that we were at was the Garden of Gethsemane in Jerusalem. The Garden of Gethsemane is the place where Jesus prayed uh, the night before he was arrested. And the gospels tell us that, uh, that Jesus, uh, knowing what was gonna happen to him, uh, he was so distressed. We were in the Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane is the place where Jesus prayed the night before, or the, right before he was arrested. In fact, it's where he was arrested. The gospels tell us that when Jesus went there after the Last Supper, he went there to pray, and he was so distressed in his spirit that he was sweating blood, and he was collapsing, like he couldn't even stand up. He was collapsing. He was so distressed. And, and the, the prayer that he prayed was this. I don't know if you've ever prayed a prayer like this, but this is how Jesus prayed. He said, God, don't make me go through with this. Don't make me do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through with this. See, there was this anticipation of the physical suffering, but you got to understand what caused him to sweat blood, what caused him to collapse wasn't the physical suffering. It was knowing the spiritual anguish that awaited him, the spiritual agony that was to come because he knew that as he would hang on that cross, the sin of the world, my sin, your sin, the judgment for every sin that's ever been committed would be placed upon him. The father would forsake him. Everything would be dark and he would suffer the spiritual agony of that judgment. And that thought, as he anticipated it, it was absolutely crippling. And so he prayed, Father, if there is any other way, then don't make me go through with this. Let this cup pass from me. But then he added these words. And this is the ultimate statement of faith. He said this, And yet, not what I want, but what you want, Lord. Not my will, but your will be done. Do you understand? That's the essence of faith. That's what it means to have faith. That is the essence of humble submission to God. Is when you say, Lord, I don't want to go through with this. Lord, please. But yet, no matter what, your will, not my will, I submit. And James is telling us that is the way out of the cycle of misery and into joy. And you say, well, Jesus didn't seem very joyful when he was praying that prayer, true. But guess what happened? As a result of submitting himself to God and going through that, the Bible tells us that so much joy was the result, not only for us, but also for him. Verse eight, James tells us this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let me tell you this, you can have as much of God as you want. I want you to think about that. I want you to let that sink in. You can have as much of God as you want. And so the question is this, how much of him do you want? If you will draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. You can have as much of him as you want. The way out of misery and into joy involves resisting the devil and drawing near to God. James says in verse nine, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Maybe you say, I thought this was the path into joy. And he's talking about mourning and being wretched, right? Like that doesn't sound very joyful. How can mourning and weeping and gloom be the way out of misery and into joy? Now, remember what I said about the Sermon on the Mount. So many things in James are references to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five five to seven. 
And here's how Jesus' Sermon on the Mount began. Do you remember it? It began with something called the Beatitudes. You ever, you ever remember those, right? The Beatitudes go like this. They start like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Maybe you've wondered before, well, what, what even is a Beatitude? Like, what is a Beatitude? Some people say, well, Beatitude, it means these are the attitudes that you should be, right? Beatitude. Well, that sounds cute, but that's absolutely not true, right? That's, that's not even like linguistically correct at all. The word Beatitude uh, comes from the Latin phrase for happy, Beaticus, right? And so it, what it means, Beatitudes, literally it means the happy sayings, the happy sayings. And, and here's what's interesting. Each of those phrases actually begins with the word happy. You know, it's a weird historical thing, but the reason it was translated blessed when they translated the Bible into English in the late 1500s, early 1600s, was because they read the text and they thought, well, the word happy sounds a bit not spiritual. And so they said, well, we need to find a, a churchy sounding word. So we'll use the word blessed instead of happy. But you got to understand in the original text, the original Greek text is the word makarios, which literally means happy. So if we want to read Jesus' words the way he said them, we got to reread those uh, happy sayings, the Beatitudes, and we read them again, right? And we say, happy are the poor in spirit. That changes the tone of it, doesn't it? Because I can be blessed and be poor in spirit, but can I be happy and be poor in spirit? Happy are those who mourn. That almost sounds like a contradiction in terms, right? Like you're mourning, how can you be, how can you be happy while you're mourning? Well, here's what you need to understand. The, the Beatitudes form a progression. And essentially what they mean is these happy sayings. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by telling us how to be happy. And what he's doing is he's breaking our paradigm of how we think about how happiness happens and what happiness is. He's giving us a whole new way of thinking about happiness. And he says, Here's, here are the steps that lead to happiness. Step number one, happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the first step in experiencing, realizing true, lasting, real happiness is realizing, coming to terms with the fact that you are spiritually bankrupt, that there is literally nothing you have to lay on the table before God to justify yourself. You've got nothing. How does that make you happy? Well, go to the next step. Happy are those who weep, for they will be comforted. Again, that sounds like a contradiction in terms. How can you say that somebody who's mourning and weeping is happy? Because that's what James tells us here too, doesn't he? Mourn and weep. Here's why. Because the next step towards experiencing true happiness is not only recognizing your spiritual condition, but mourning and weeping over that condition. See, it's one thing to acknowledge that you're spiritually poor. It's another thing to be grieved over it in your heart, to be heartbroken over it. It's another thing to weep over it. Paul the Apostle tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says this, godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. You see, it's when you realize and recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt and you mourn over that fact and you repent of that, that is when God comes to you and says, you are forgiven. See, the reason why mourning leads to happiness is because those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy and mourn over it, they will be comforted with the truest comfort that can only relieve their distress, which is the forgiveness of your sins and the grace of God. 
That's what James is talking about here in James 4 when he says mourn and weep, right? He's talking about that moment when you come to terms with who you are and who God is and there's no more room for pride. There's no more room for self-reliance anymore. You're just humble. You're broken before God realizing that you are absolutely in need of his grace. You see, the way that leads out of misery and leads into joy is this way of surrendering your life to God. That's all it comes down to. It's this way of surrendering your life to God where you're no longer living under your own selfish agenda trying to make your dreams come true, but now you're thinking, God, what is your dream for my life? God, what is your vision for my life? God, what is it that you're calling me to do? It's where you say, God, you don't exist to serve me. I exist to serve you. That life, the surrendered life, no longer resisting God, but now resisting the devil, that life of humble surrender to God, that is the most joyful, the most fulfilling, guys, the most adventure-filled life that you could ever live. The way to be miserable, the way to live a small life is to be focused on yourself. The more focused you are on yourself and serving yourself, pleasing yourself, worried about what other people think about you, trying to prove yourself, make yourself happy, the more miserable you will be. Why? Because it leads to conflict. It leads to conflict with other people. It leads to covetousness. It even leads to conflict with God. It leads to frustration. It leads to unfulfilled desires. Instead, it's in surrendering your life to God and his purposes and his mission. That is how you will experience rich, abundant, and full life. That is how you'll experience true joy and peace and happiness and true fulfillment. And now I wanna close on this last point, and that's this. The judge who saves. James ends this section, verses 11 and 12, by giving us a warning about speaking evil against one another. He tells us in verse 12, basically this, you have no right to speak evil against somebody else because you're not the judge. God is the judge. There's only one judge who is able to save and to destroy. See, one of the things that's characteristic of this chapter, and this is what I told you I'd explain with the murder and adultery thing. Notice James actually lists four, at least four of the 10 commandments here in these few verses, doesn't he? He says, you shall not murder, right? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet and you shall have no other gods before me. Four out of the 10 commandments are mentioned in just these few verses. And the reason James uses the words he does is because he wants to show them and he wants to show us that we have broken God's law, we've broken the 10 commandments. And so rather than spending their time pointing out other people's faults, right? They should be spending their time weeping and mourning over their own sins so that they can receive grace from God. See, James is using a very interesting phrase here at the end. It's a phrase that that just caught my attention as I was reading it. He says this, there is only one judge who can save and destroy. But think about that, a judge who saves? What kind of judge It's his job to save people who are guilty. That's not the job of a judge. Quite the opposite. The job of a judge is to condemn and convict those who are guilty, right? If there were judges out there who weren't doing that, we'd say, well, they're not very good judges. But notice how justice works. Again, remember, justice is giving someone what they deserve. And so he's shown us we have broken God's law. He's listed the Ten Commandments. We've broken them. And he's saying God is a judge, but he's a judge who saves, Isn't that interesting? How can a judge carry out justice and yet save people who are guilty at the same time? That's the conundrum. But guess what? The answer to that question 
is the most amazing truth the world has ever known. And I'll just close with this. Today is Palm Sunday. Maybe you wondered, is he gonna talk about Palm Sunday? You bet I am. The events of Palm Sunday and what happened in the days following Palm Sunday are the key to understanding how God can be the judge who is righteous and the judge who saves the guilty. Palm Sunday is called Palm Sunday because it's the day when almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem for the very last time because only a few days after that, he would be nailed to a cross and he would die. But on Palm Sunday, Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem with great fanfare. At a ticker tape parade, they laid down palm branches to create a red carpet. They were welcoming him into Jerusalem as the rightful king. They were declaring him to be king. And Jesus rode into town on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah the prophet that he had prophesied the Messiah would come into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Well, what's the significance of a donkey? A donkey represents humility. You can imagine, right, a general run, riding into war on the back of a donkey. It never happened, right? You, know, you ever see those equestrian statues, right, with the great military leader riding on a, on a horse? You never see like a great military leader riding on a donkey because a donkey uh, is an animal that is, speaks of humility. It's not an animal that speaks of, of conquering, and so when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the people shouted, Hosanna. And the word Hosanna, it means save us, rescue us, liberate us. And so here comes Jesus riding on the donkey. The people recognize him as king. They say, here is our liberator. Here is our savior. They believed that Jesus had come to liberate them from the Romans. See, the kind of salvation they were expecting was less than the kind of salvation that Jesus came to bring. And within a very, very few hours of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem with all that fanfare, it became very clear to the people that Jesus had no intention of, of waging war against the Romans. Oh, Jesus had come to be their king. He had come to save them, but not in the way that they expected. Jesus came to bring them something which was much greater than what they hoped for. They were looking for political autonomy and lower taxes. That's all they wanted. And Jesus came to free them from bondage to sin and death. And when the people realized that Jesus was not going to overthrow the Romans, they turned on him. And within a few days, four days, guys, many of those same people who, who shouted out and cried, Hosanna, our liberator is here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those same people stood around and they, they shouted a new tune, right, didn't they? They said, crucify him. When we were in Jerusalem, we got to stand in the place where those people stood and shouted, crucify him. It's still there. And what's ironic is that they turned Jesus over to the Roman officials. They accused him of plotting to overthrow the Romans. So the Romans put him to death as an insurrectionist. And isn't that ironic? Because it's funny because what they wanted him to be was an insurrectionist and he wouldn't be. And that's why they turned against him. And the way they got him killed was by accusing him of doing the very thing which they wanted him to do, but which he wouldn't do. Again, we were in Jerusalem. We got to stand in this place. This is the place where Jesus stood and Pontius Pilate washed his hands and the crowd stood around and they yelled, crucify him. But here's what the Bible tells us. It tells us this in Acts 2 verse 23. It says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Think about what that verse is saying. It's saying, did Jesus suffer injustice? Yes. But was it according to the plan of God? Absolutely. All of these things that happened, his crucifixion, 
was according to the plan of God. It was, Jesus, it was God's plan that Jesus be crucified. Why? Because when Jesus was crucified, all of my sin, all of your sin, it was accounted to him. He took the punishment on the cross so that you and I could be saved. He took the justice for sin so that you could receive the mercy. He took the justice so you could receive the mercy and not just the mercy, but so you could get the grace. The Bible tells us that one day, Jesus is going to judge the world. That's interesting, right? Because it also tells us that God is the judge of the world. And here James tells us that there is one judge and it is God. So if Jesus is the judge and God is the judge and there's only one judge, what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus is God. And that's important because what that means is that when Jesus came to this world, when he lived the life that he lived, when he died the death that he died, when he resurrected from the dead, do you understand that that was God come to us to live the life that we should have lived but have failed to and to die the death that we deserve to die but can't? See, the third day he rose from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He kicked a hole in the walls of death so that he could walk right out and make a way for you and me to live eternally with God. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is the judge who saves. The title we gave this message was The Way of Sorrows and the Way of Joy. There's a road in Jerusalem which is called the Via Dolorosa. The Via Dolorosa. Do you know what that means? It literally means the way of sorrows. Do you get where I'm going with this? The title of the message, the way of sorrows and the way of joy. This isn't just two ways. So on the one hand, we're talking about two ways of living, a way that leads to sorrow and misery and a way that leads to joy. But here's why it's all possible. Because Jesus walked the way of sorrows, the Via Dolorosa. That's the path that Jesus walked as he carried the cross to Golgotha. He carried that cross through the streets of Jerusalem, out of the city gates, and he was crucified there outside the city gates. He walked the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows. And for us, what was for Jesus the way of sorrows has become the way of joy, hasn't it? Because of what he did for us. The Old Testament, it calls Jesus, the prophet Isaiah, it called the Messiah, the man of sorrows. And if you look at this section, you'll notice here in James 4, everything James talks about, Jesus experienced and embodied. People spoke evil against Jesus. People literally murdered him, right? Jesus is the essence of what it means to live a life wholly surrendered to God. He's the essence of humility, riding in on a donkey, God condescending to us, coming down, meeting us on our level. He endured our hardship. He took our pain. He was tempted, and yet he resisted the devil. And where we have broken God's law, he fulfilled it perfectly. He carried a cross he didn't deserve so that we could receive the gift that we don't deserve. And guys, that's good news. He walked the way of sorrows so that his way of sorrows for us could become the way of joy. Do you know that? Do you know that he loves you today? Do you have a sense of that? Is it a strong sense in your mind? He loves you. Look at the way of the cross and see it. See what he did for you. It is God come to you because he loves you. And I'll tell you one last thing. He doesn't just love you. He doesn't just save you. He does one thing more than that. He empowers you. You look at all these things James says. Hey, resist the devil. Draw near to God. Is he just giving us a list of things that we need to try harder and do better? No, here's why. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, not only does he save you, not only does he justify you, but he comes and he indwells you. And as he indwells you, he gives you the power and the strength to do that which he has called you to do. 
So I want you to rest in that. Rest in the knowledge of his love and rest in the strength of him inside you, empowering you to fulfill all of these things that we've talked about in his strength. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you walked the way of sorrows. Lord, in your way of sorrows for us is the way of joy. Lord, thank you for your love. May we truly not live self-centered lives. May we live lives that are surrendered to you, just like Jesus, you live for us. Lord, as we do that, would you empower us to do the things that you call us to do for your glory, for the good of other people, and for our joy. Lord, may we know your joy and fullness. Thank you, Lord, that we who believe, you indwell us and you empower us. So Lord, we rest on your strength and power to do that which you've called us to do. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.